Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Hey there. Lots of cool stuff to see in the night sky this month. For instance, you can see our two largest planets, Jupiter and Saturn. So, Professor J. Scott Miller is going to guide us around the July night sky and tell us about this supermassive black hole that's in the center of our galaxy. And then we're going to eavesdrop on part of a live conference held by the Kentucky Academy of Science this June. This week, we'll hear from an electrical engineer, Dr. Zeal Maheshwari. She's at Northern Kentucky University, and she'll be speaking today on the topic of green homes. But first, Scott Miller on the July night sky. Summer observing in the night sky has one real drawback. It is quite late before it's dark. In early July, we are still close to the first day of summer back in June, corresponding to the longest amount of daylight. The northern hemisphere is tipped more in the direction of the sun at this time in the orbit of the Earth around the sun. Nice for warming up the weather, but definitely cuts down the number of dark hours. So, waiting until darkness comes around 10 o'clock, I begin my journey outdoors. I have a pretty good idea of the directions north, south, east, and west at my house, but as a reminder from past episodes, if you are not sure, look for the Big Dipper. In early July and the early evening skies, the Big Dipper is found high up in the northwestern sky. The stars that make it up, seven in all, are all roughly the same brightness, which help to mark it. Four of those stars form a near rectangle, which mark its bulb while three stars beyond the bowl form a crooked line marking the handle. The two bowl stars that are farthest from the handle are called the pointer stars. They are used to point to the north star, Polaris. Start with the star to the left of the pointer stars, extend a line to the right and through the second, and then extend that line about four to five times the separation of those two stars. The star you reach should be Polaris, roughly the same brightness as the stars making up the Big Dipper. Polaris is the North Star because it stays put in the North. It does so because the Earth's rotation axis, if extended up toward the stars, would pass pretty close to Polaris. So if you could imagine that the imaginary axis as a pole touching the sky, we rotate about that pole and Polaris would stay put. The other stars in the sky travel in arcs throughout the night because of our rotation. More noticeable near to Polaris, Longer arcs in nature as stars far enough away are seen to rise in the east and set in the west. What is of interest, though, is finding a marker to find north, and Polaris fits the bill. It does not move from its location throughout the night or throughout the year. It remains at the same angle above the horizon from one's location. So, once found, and with practice, one would not even need the Big Dipper to find it. Just stand where you were the last time you were out at night, crick your neck about the same amount, and the lone star located there would be Polaris, showing the direction north once again. Usually when I start my tour of the night sky, I start in the western sky, 
But as I have mentioned in the past few episodes, Venus has moved out of the evening sky after lingering there much of the spring months, and Mercury made a brief appearance in June, and is now also gone. So perhaps the eastern sky can yield planets. While facing north, I can turn to my right until my shoulders more or less are pointing toward north and Polaris to scan the eastern sky. In the southeast, around 10 p.m., are two bright star-like points. The brighter of the two and the one most above the horizon is Jupiter. Closer to the horizon, possibly even blocked if your horizon is hindered by hills or nearby trees, is Saturn. As bright star-like objects go, they outshine all the stars in the sky at present. That might make it easier to identify them. I know that in driving home late at night, Jupiter in particular catches my eye when driving in that direction. And once I spot Jupiter, Saturn is trailing it and pretty easy to pick up as well. Jupiter and Saturn lie to the east of a constellation called Sagittarius the Archer. Now imagining that group of stars as an archer can be a bit of a challenge, but the brighter stars of that constellation form a pattern somewhat like a teapot. Four of the stars closest to Jupiter form a flattened rectangle which marks the handle of the teapot. To the right of that are three stars forming a small right triangle of sorts, which could be the spout. The bowl of the teapot is thus the area between these two. And above the bowl is a single star that helps form the lid on the teapot. If your skies are dark enough, rising out of the spout you may see a hazy patch. That would be steam rising out of the spout but also marks part of the Milky Way, which can be seen stretching across the eastern sky toward the W-shaped pattern of stars called Cassiopeia above the north-northeastern horizon. The part of the Milky Way near the spout of the teapot is the direction of the center of our galaxy. Some 26,000 light-years away from us in that direction is a monster, a supermassive black hole with a mass about 2.6 million times the mass of the Sun, located in the center of our galaxy. Fortunately, at 26,000 light-years, its gravitational pull is so weak as to not to be a bother to us. We just keep orbiting around it along with the other stars that make up our galaxy, just as the planets orbit the Sun. Just in front of Sagittarius is a long S-shaped pattern of stars. This is Scorpius the Scorpion. The reddish-colored star almost due south in our early evening skies is Antares. It marks the heart of the Scorpion. Just beyond are three stars, one above the other, marking the face and beginning of the pincer-like claws. These are made up of some of the dimmer stars on either side and beyond the face. Finally, south of Antares is a long curve of stars ending with two nearly side by side. This would be the body and long whip-like tail of the scorpion, including a stinger represented by those last two stars. As the Milky Way stretches from Sagittarius over toward Cassiopeia, it passes through three stars, marking a near isosceles triangle. This is the Summer Triangle, made of three bright stars from three different constellations. Closest to the top of the sky is Vega, in the constellation Lyra the Harp. East of it is Deneb, in Cygnus the Swan, and the southernmost of the three is Altair, in Aquila the Eagle. A good star map will show off each constellation, and I will say more about them in future episodes. Happy observing. That was Professor J. Scott Miller, astronomer and physicist at Maysville Community and Technical College. Thanks, Scott. And now we're going to eavesdrop on the first session of a lecture series recently initiated by the Kentucky Academy of Science. 
Now, most professional scientific societies this year are having to cancel their annual conferences because of the pandemic. One of the things that KAS is doing, though, is to sponsor a series of online lectures given by Kentucky scientists that are of interest to the general public. And we are honored to be asked to collaborate with the Kentucky Academy of Science on this effort. In fact, it's called Bench Talk Live, and we're going to try to rebroadcast as many of these Bench Talk Live sessions as we can. On July 13, there's another two talks you might be interested in. They're on visual perception and communication, but I'll tell you more about that later. This first session of Bench Talk Live was held on June 2nd, 2020, and it featured two important engineers from Northern Kentucky University. First, there was Dr. Saeed Alame's talk that was titled Digital Homes Manufacturing Futuristic Structures, but unfortunately, there were some problems with the audio. But we will provide a link on our SoundCloud page if you want to see a slideshow. The second speaker was Dr. Zeal Maheshwari. She's assistant professor in the Department of Physics, Geology, and Engineering Technology at NKU. She received her Ph.D. in electrical and computer engineering at Oklahoma State University, and her specialties include power systems, smart grids, and integration of renewable energy systems, among other things. The title of her talk was Green Homes. But first you'll hear from Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Dr. Zeal Maheshwari is a colleague of Dr. Alamaze at Northern Kentucky University, and she is going to share with us about a green and healthy home for the future. Thank you, Marla. Okay, a very good evening to one and all. So my name is Zeal Maheshwari. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Physics, Geology, and Engineering Technology in the Northern Kentucky University. And I'm here to again discuss with you what would uh, your dream home look like if you make it into a green home. And my research is mostly focused into power systems and renewable energy. So here it is. Here is the outline of my presentation. I'm going to just talk about the background of conventional homes, introduction to what is a green home, typical green home, some cost and environmental benefits of having a green home, and finally, concluding remarks. So consider this to be one of your houses. A typical American household kind of uh, uses up to 11 megawatt hour of electrical energy per year. In simple terms, it means we use about 11,000 electrical units over a period of one year. So that roughly comes up to 900 or 1,000 units per month. Now, one megawatt hour of electricity produced in the state of Kentucky emits one ton of CO2 emissions. Therefore, 11 megawatt hour of electricity emits 11 tons of CO2 per year. Now, this is not the problem. The problem becomes bigger when you consider five homes or even more 10 homes. You do the math, right? There is so much of emissions, even unknowingly, that we probably emit into the atmosphere even without knowing about it. So what is that we can probably do? Well, we can probably transition our traditional house into something called as the green home. So what is the definition that we're looking for? Well, when I talk about green home, I think the first thing that comes into your mind is a house painted with green paint. That's not what I'm talking about, or I'm not talking about a house in probably like a tree house or something. 
I'm talking a green home is a type of home designed to be environmentally sustainable. It means being smart about how we use energy, water, and building materials without needlessly damaging the environment. It means building beautiful homes, like this Dr. Alame mentioned, that meets our needs while ensuring that we leave our world healthy enough for our future generation to meet theirs. So there are few alternative names for green homes. It's also called as smart energy home. It's called as a sustainable home. It's called as a home renewable energy system or an eco-friendly home, zero energy home, or a residential renewable energy. All of these kind of point to the same thing. It kind of has the same objective of having a home which is sustainable and does not harm the environment. So what a typical green home looks like? Well, a green home has several features. We are kind of going to broadly classify these features as into water, energy, and building materials. Let's start with our most basic component of our lives, that is water. Household water conservation can help us conserve clean water and can prevent water pollution in a way that you can possibly just use low flow showers or low flow toilets to probably save up to 15 to 20% of water per year. You can also reuse water in several ways. For example, when you wash your vegetables or fruits, rather than just throwing away the water, you can possibly use that water to use for your plants or garden purposes. Rainwater harvesting is a proven method and it's very efficient in water conservation. It at least saves your water by at least 50%, which is a lot. The other thing here that I'd like to mention is the eco-friendly building materials. Like Dr. Alami has already talked about it and we already know that there are a lot of eco-friendly building materials existing. But that just not helps the environment. It is also healthy enough. It's not toxic. And these are small changes possibly everybody can do is that change all your traditional lights into LED lighting that saves at least about 90% of electricity consumption on an annual basis. Also, next time, look into buying any appliance, look into buying energy-efficient appliances that would not just save you money, but is also good for the environment. The other thing is possibly that we can do is use solar panels or wind turbines to power our houses. As we all know, solar panels and wind turbines are clean form of energy. That means they do not emit any CO2s into the atmosphere, and they also use very little water. Well, just talking about this kind of a typical green home, when we are all aware of the green home, then why don't we really implement it? Or why are we really not living in one of these? Perhaps it is because that some of us are not aware that it, there are more healthier, more sustainable housing exists. Or we know that it exists, but possibly we are afraid that it might cost a lot more than the normal houses does. But I am here to kind of clear your doubts in your mind. So let's look into some kind of basics uh, before we go into solar and wind, because that is what I'm going to focus on in this talk. So here is a solar radiation map for Kentucky. Like you can see, most of Kentucky receives about the same amount of solar radiation. And except barring for this eastern Kentucky, which receives a little lesser solar radiation when compared to the rest of Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky about receives about 4.5 to 5 kilowatt hour per meter square per day, which is pretty good to have solar panels installed. It is going to be very efficient if you have solar panels installed. So assuming that you stay in one of these areas, I'm going to make some recommendations. 
for solar panels, first thing. So consider a conventional home. I've already mentioned we use about 1,000 units per month. And considering about we pay 10 cents per unit, it comes up to $100 per month. And that costs us about $1,200 per year. Now, on the other hand, let's consider solar panels. Now, again, for the region that I was referring to in the state of Kentucky, if we want to install solar panels for the same house, you may probably require about 7 kilowatt, which is about $3.18 per watt. And that would kind of result as about roughly $22,000. Now, also, you would take a 26% federal solar tax credit. And after we apply this tax credit, it would roughly cost us about $16,000. So the point here is, you might wonder, why do I say that using solar panels is going to be more cost effective? Because clearly, you're using just $1,200 a year for your conventional home. But... $16,000 to install solar panels. Well, here is the thing. You would end up spending $30,000 over a period of 25 years. And at the same time, you would roughly spend about sixteen dollars or $17,000 for 25 years. The term 25 years is considered because of the fact that solar panels have a lifespan of around 25 years. And therefore, you can clearly see that when we transition our conventional home into using solar panels, you can definitely save a lot of money. Let's talk about wind. So this is the wind profile of the state of Kentucky. Again, if you see here, there are some brown patches in here, which states that the good wind speed there. So it's about 6 to 6.5 meters per second, whereas the yellow region is about 5 to 5.5 meters per second, and the green region is about 4 meters per second. So Kentucky is, again, very suitable even for wind turbines. And if we consider about 6 to 6.5, here are some recommendations. So again, consider the same home. Uh, we, we are paying still about $1,000 a month for $1,200 for a year. When you use wind turbines, you possibly need about 5 kilowatt hour of installed wind capacity. And at $3 a watt, we are talking about $15,000. Now again, we do have a 30% federal tax credit that was implemented in 2016 and has been extended up to 2021. And we are hopeful that it's going to be extended even further. So once you buy a wind turbine, you can ask up to 30% in federal tax credit. So it's going to cost you about $10,500. But it's a little different when compared to your solar panels because in terms of wind energy, you would use a little more money for maintenance and operations since there are a lot of rotating parts and rotating parts usually require more maintenance than a stationary object. So about $5,000 in uh, operation and maintenance for 25 years, yet you're going to save a lot of money in terms of cost savings, right? Because when you're paying $30,000 for 25 years, you would still end up paying lesser if you have a wind turbine. The bigger benefit of installing solar panels or wind turbines is that you can possibly become a prosumer. Now, let's actually understand what the term prosumer means. At this point, most of us are just consumers. That means we simply buy electricity from the grid and use it and pay our electricity bill. As simple as that. But when you become a prosumer, that means you are a producer and a consumer. That means if your, your renewable energy, that is either solar panels or wind turbines, are producing more energy at that moment than required, you can actually sell it back to the grid. 
So if you see, there are smaller arrows here which show the bidirectional flow of electricity. And this is really the future. So prosumer means a producer who is also a consumer. So it's the new term. A lot of European countries like Denmark and even some cities in US are already implementing the prosumer thing. And it's kind of the new era in uh, electrical energy and in power systems. Obviously, we have talked about cost benefits. We also have environmental benefits. So reducing air pollution is one of the biggest advantages of installing renewable energy systems. Another thing is we can help slow climate change effects. We can reduce our household carbon footprint. We can easily save up to 11 tons of emissions per home annually if you switch to greenhousing. Also, renewable energy uses really little water when compared to conventional energy like coal or anything else. So usually conventional energies use much more water when they are generating electricity. But as we know, solar panels do not require any water and wind requires very little maintenance. The other big thing is that we would be reducing reliance on fossil fuels. Fossil fuels, as we know, are limited resources and they're going to deplete sometimes. So this is one way of reducing reliance on fossil fuels. The other thing that I want, uh, want to talk about is the green building materials and what is the future. Now, Dr. Alami has talked a lot about the green buildings and, you know, possibly how we can use 3D printing to build our home of our dream. So green building materials, in fact, is the next big thing. The global market for green building materials is set to reach $364 billion by 2022. Here are some examples of future green buildings that have already either been taken place or are yet in the process. So this is one green building that is the picture is right here. It's in Netherlands and it's a thousand unit. It's called Mark in Dutch city of Ukraine. The project is going to be completed by 2023. And if you see here, if you notice, there are green houses on the roof and in the patio to grow vegetables so it, you can be self-sustainable. Also, there are going to be solar panels on parking garages to produce enough power. So we all are aware of the fact that Netherlands is really a bikes country. They love their bikes. So there is going to be a garage capacity of 3,500 bikes in, among these three buildings. There's also going to be a provision for uh, electric car sharing services. And the biggest thing, it's going to be affordable to most of the people. Majority of these houses are going to be sold to low income or elderly people. Other few examples of green building are Milwaukee has recently approved the 21 story tower, which is going to be America's tallest timber tower. And for those of you who are not aware of uh, term timber, it's kind of more sustainable material than concrete or steel, and it's more lighter in weight. And other cities where big timber towers have been proposed are Chicago, Cleveland, Portland in USA, and Tokyo in Japan. 25 King Tower Brisbane in Australia is a 10-story eco-friendly office which saves 29% of clean water and uses 46% less energy. So it's clearly that, you know, the future belongs to green buildings and green homes. So here are a few concluding remarks uh, that I would like to possibly give. That green home effectively uses energy, water, and building materials to reduce impact on human health and environment. 
If you plan to install renewable energy for your home, then possibly first thing is to estimate energy needs throughout the year. And it's, that is quite easy because you can just go through your electricity bills for at least a year to kind of estimate how much energy you have used. Also, you could calculate the size and the cost of the system that you will need. There are tons of resources on the internet and there are tons of companies that are willing to help you to estimate the size and the cost of system that you're looking into. Also, the decision to make is, depending on your location, you can either decide to use solar panels or to use wind or to use both resources. There is a big advantage in using both the resources at the same time is that solar energy and wind energy kind of complement each other very well. What that means is that usually during the daytime, we have a lot of solar energy, but during the nighttime, we have much more of wind energy. So they kind of complement each other pretty well. And finally, we can also take some measures to reduce electricity use, like, you know, simple things like turn off the lights when they're not in use or use kind of energy efficient appliances. Transitioning to a green home not just saves money, but is also eco-friendly. Creating a green home isn't just about conservation, although that's one aspect of it. Creating a green home is about recognizing that our domestic decisions have repercussions in the larger world. It's about creating vital communities where people from all walks of our lives will help each other thrive. It's about using our ingenuity and spirit to create places that nurture, honor, and celebrate people and the planet. And definitely the future of the home is not just smart, it's green, sustainable and affordable. Also, I would like to just mention a few projects we are currently conducting at NKU. We have just completed one project that is solar-based smart outdoor lighting system where we kind of prove that implementing solar or installing solar panels is going to save NKU much more money than they are right now spending. Also, we have plans to set up a creative solar space at NKU. And a couple of my students are working on building a wind turbine emulator. So this is going to be a machine that's going to be installed. Actually, I'm going to work with Dr. Alame on this project. And we are kind of working on building a wind turbine for the lab. So we do not have to, you know, rely on installing it outside. Also, I have one of my students right here who's working on a solar array emulator. And she is kind of, actually a couple of them are there working on building something which can be used within the lab and that can kind of imitate the environment. With that, I'd like to conclude with my favorite quote that goes, the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else was saved. Thank you very much for listening and I'll be open for any questions that you might have. Thank you. That was Dr. Zeal Maheshwari, electrical engineer at Northern Kentucky University. Thanks for letting us listen in, Zeal. Now, the next session of Bench Talk Live is being held on Monday, July 13 at 7 p.m. Just do an internet search for Kentucky Academy of Science Bench Talk Live, and you can see the details on how to register for this live Zoom session. By attending the session, you'll actually get to see the speakers, you can see their PowerPoint presentations, and then you can participate in the question and answer period afterwards. One researcher on July 13th will be talking about the neuroscience behind how visual information is transmitted and how our brains are able to recognize faces. 
She'll also discuss how this pathway might be interrupted by the pandemic, like wearing of masks and having virtual meetings. And the other speaker will be discussing how the wearing of masks and seeing each other on small screens might be interfering with how we interpret facial cues about the emotional status of the people we're talking to. And how does age affect our ability to read faces? So check this out. Before July 13th, go to www.kyscience.org slash benchtalklive and you can get details about this past session and the future ones. Thanks. Well, that's our show today. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. To listen to any of our older episodes, just go to forwardradio.org or check out our Facebook page. Thank you for listening to WFMP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.